Tonight on Arena, we celebrate the centenary of the birth of the author of The Querfella, The Hostage and Borstal Boy, Brendan Behan. The Irish aren't my audience, they're my raw material. Words from author, playwright and rebel Brendan Behan, who was born on the 9th of February 1923. And on Arena this evening, we are marking the centenary of his birth by looking at the literary legacy of the man who referred to himself as a drinker with a writing problem. There were many faces to Behan, his radical family background, his early days of imprisonment in Borstal for being in the IRA, his beginnings as a writer and his eventual success with his plays, The Queer Fella and The Hostage on Broadway and on London's West End. His 1958 book, Borstal Boy, saw Behan exploit his incomparable command of the oral style of Dublin to produce a portrait of the artist as prisoner of national prejudice. He had become one of Ireland's most recognisable literary exports but he had his demons too and died at the tragedy young age of 41 after years of heavy drinking with me in studio this evening to celebrate uh, Brendan Behan we have historian Donald Fallon playwright and director Peter Sheridan and musicians Sterry Farrell Anne Buckley and McDarry Yates who will be part of Behan at 100 which is at the Liberty Hall in Dublin next Thursday but before we talk about Brendan Behan let's hear from Brendan Behan. A hungry feeling came on me stealing And the mice they were squealing in my prison cell And that old triangle is when jingle jangle Brendan Behan there singing the old triangle song by Dick Shannon but made famous by Behan when he included it in his play, The Queer Fella, in 1954. As I say, this evening on Arena, we're celebrating the 100th uh, the centenary, the anniversary of the birth of Brendan Behan. And let's start in the world of, of history uh, with Donald Fallon. Bring us back to the early days, in fact, February 1923, Donald, and, and the family into which Brendan Behan was born. Quite a household. So, yeah, and in February 23, the Civil War uh, is still on, the Irish Revolution. I mean, people are debating if there's been a revolution at all. You know, Kevin O'Higgins has a beautiful line. He says, we're the most conservative people who ever had a successful revolution. <laughs> and then there are others, I suppose, on the left who, who view things very differently. And that's the kind of household that Brendan Behan is, is born into. Uh, it's said that he first sees his father through the bars of a prison uh, at Comenum Jail, which is extraordinary when you think about it. So... On one level, when a state, you know, it comes into existence in the way we did, everyone's a child of the revolution, you could argue, but mm. Behan is literally a child of the Irish revolution. His yeah, mother I... has those connections to, to coming him on. Uh, she'd been housekeeper in Mod. Imagine being the housekeeper in Mod Gaughan's yeah. household. <laughs> you know, rubbing shoulders of people like William Butler Yeats. Uh, the father, you know, has this extraordinary revolutionary pedigree in trade unionism. So it's socialism, it's nationalism, it's internationalism, it's the feminism of its mother, it's literature. All of these things combine uh, to make the young Brendan who he is. And what did the father work at um, when, he, when he was working, when he wasn't involved in revolutionary activities? The father was a trade unionist, but he was a house painter uh, by trade. So that was a, a family tradition that Behan followed him into for a, a very brief period of time. <laughs> and I think Behan's socialism was a little bit like Oscar Wilde's socialism, his, his hero who believed that socialism was not having to work. You know, <laughs> Behan <laughs> didn't feel that the paintbrush uh, was for him. But the father was very respected as a trade unionist yeah. uh, amongst the painters of Dublin. And yeah, on occasion, Stephen's work 
work is, is still to be found. And you're laughing as you listen to a lot of that, Peter Sheridan. <laughs> uh, your family, in fact, you were, you were quite close. You were in and around the same place as the Behans a little bit later, but the same area when, yeah. when Behan was older, obviously. Well, they were just up there at Jamie Gill's pub. People would know that landmark as you turn for Croke Park off the North Circular Road. That was Russell Street. They mm. lived in number 14. And if you come back down and down the hill of the North Circular Road, you hit several places where we grew up, number 44, and where Luke Kelly mm. uh, went to school in the local school, along with myself and my, my brother Jim and so on. So, yeah, we, we, were, we were separated by the hill from Portland Row up to the North Circular Road, so very much from the same neck of the woods. Brendan went to school in, um, in uh, North William Street, and um, we went to Lawrence Hills. They would have been a kind of oppos- opposing schools. But yeah, yeah, we're very much from the same hinterland. Yeah, this was before the Behans moved miles away to, Cr- <laughs> to, to Crumlin. That's in 1935, yeah, yeah. When Kathleen got the keys to a house on Kildare Road in Crumlin and Stephen was just mortified at the idea of living in a place that was actually closer to Kildare than it was <laughs> to the city of Dublin. Um, but, 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 you know, Kathleen had her way and the family left one Sunday and she, she threw the bits and pieces up on, on their aunt Jack's cart who sold, she sold coal mm. and they went out to Crumlin where Brendan never settled and was never comfortable at number 70 uh, Kildare Road. There's, yeah. a, there's a lovely big plaque of Brendan's head uh, on the house and on the day it was unveiled Kathleen said he never liked it here but he loved the people. Oh, there you go, yeah. And, and very much, I suppose, that, that's in the, the spirit of the man, yeah. that love of Dublin and love of the people and the talk of Dublin, the, the speech of Dublin. One of the first great writers of the suburban experience uh, as well, him and, and his brother Dominic, they really wrote about that sense of alienation in, in Crumlin. Mm. You know, no suburbia, only Siberia, uh, as, <laughs> as Behan put it. But yeah, this, this dream of these new working class you know, suburban hinterlands on the north and south side of Dublin, Cabra and Crumlin, and then the reality that many people there felt a, a deep longing for the city centre that they'd come from. We shouldn't forget, uh, we, we mentioned his, his family background. Padder Carney, of course, was his uncle. Extraordinary. This is the, the composer of the, of, the, of the words of the, or the writer of the words of the national anthem, Hour on the Vein. We know it as Hour on the Vein, but I mean, it was known as the soldier's song uh, when it was written. It would have been sung on the barricades during the, the Easter Rising. Padder was up in uh, Jacob's Biscuit Factory with John McBride and Tom McDonough during the Rising. So this is a, an extraordinary revolutionary pedigree. Yeah. And I suppose, Peter, it's, it's not surprising then that he would get himself into some kind of trouble in and around those political... Uh, thoughts and opinions and that particularly came to the fore as he got a little bit older and it's the subject of, mm. of the novel that he wrote Borstal Boy you made the yeah. film version of that Yeah you can just imagine the arguments at home and the being household you know between Stephen and, and Kathleen Kathleen who was kind of more of a communist leaning almost she was a kind of a, a red um, and, and Stephen who just wanted to rear the family and get on with life and be a painter and be involved in the union mm. um, and Brendan always felt that you know the partition of Ireland was unfinished business um, and that the generation that should have sorted it out didn't and it was going to be left to his generation to finish the job out so there were con- constant rows in the house um, killings going on over um, political positions that people took and the idea that Ireland was an unfinished problem that and, 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 yeah. and did Brendan lie more on the mother's side of the argument or the father's side? He was side very much a Republican yeah. Brendan he was very much a Brit so um, he grew up in that tradition yeah. and then hung around Would you around, be closer to the mother's side of yeah, opinion? Yeah. yeah and hung around with people who were of that persuasion you know when he was a kid um, and this is kind of part of the genius of, of this man of the extraordinary talent that he had in so many areas of his life um, but by the age of eight, he knew Robert Emmett's speech from the dock off by heart. 
So he used to be brought to Republican meetings and Sinn Féin meetings and they'd put him up on the counter and he'd go and off he'd go saying the Robert Emmett speech from the dock and the crowd of course would go mental mm. for this eight-year-old <laughs> guru who was up there, standing up there, delivering this in, in, in extraordinary speech and uh, he was just brilliant at it. He was brilliant at that kind of stuff. He had great remembrance. He could remember things all the time. Like I mean, he was A published poet by 12 years of age in the yeah. Republican press and, and we're very lucky you know, that we're sitting here talking about Brent Brendan Bean, because had the teenage Brendan Bean had his way, we mightn't be here. I mean, he tried to go to the Spanish Civil War. Mm. He had this fire of youth, and, and thankfully, Frank Ryan had the good sense to say, you're far too young to go. But you know, great talent like the, the, the poet Charlie Donnelly died in the battlefields of Spain, and, and young Brendan wanted to go out there and, and fight with them. So when he's a teenager, he mm. wants to be there in the thick yeah. of, of the battle. Well, of course, it was in his teen years then that he got himself into trouble and landed in Barcelona. Yeah, and landed in, in Liverpool jail first. I mean, interestingly, in the book, which, you know, is the account of that time, more than half of the book is set in Liverpool, <laughs> where yeah. in Walton jail, because that's where he was picked up. He was picked up in Liverpool. He was brought to an adult prison where he was interrogated. Walton jail was not a nice place to be. It was a definitely not nice place to be, and he took a terrible beating there at 16 years of age, because he was a small, skinny kid. He wasn't the, the Brendan Bean we remember mm. of this plump kind of guy. He was a very vulnerable kid. Um, and at that age, you know, to be in a prison like that with, with male prisoners was pr- pretty rough. And at halfway through the book, they head off in the Sharabanks, I think is the expression he uses in the book. We left in the Sharabanks for Hollisley Bay, Barstow. <laughs> yeah. And he arrived in Barstow. And then, of course, the book changes tone very yeah. radically. And he starts to really enjoy the thing of mixing with boys of his own age from working class cities in England. And, of course, he meets Charlie Millwall, whom he obviously adored on some level. It was his China plate, as he called yeah. him, his mate. And uh, then, you know, Barstow becomes a nice place. And I just love the detail in the book that when he wrote home and told them what the, what the meals were like, the family wanted to come over and, and spend mm. time in Barstow with them. <laughs> <laughs> the boys, particularly Brian and yeah. Dominic, you know. But you just, just love that idea, yeah, you know. Yeah, thing. Yeah. He's having a great time over there. We're starving in Dublin. Was there more of a, I suppose, a sense of being sexuality in the novel than we we get in the film certainly and, mm. and then we get in the, in the well-known production the well-known play of Barcelona Boy which mm. basically does concentrate on the time in, in Barcelona where there's lots of fun in inverted commas to be had mm. Well definitely uh, you know as they approached the time when the book was published and, and he was working through various drafts of it they did excise more of the homosexual what they mm. call the homosexual material they were afraid of that and, you know, the crudity and the bad language was pulled back on. And Brendan complied with all of that. He was very much on the side of the editor saying, oh, because don't forget when the book was published, it was banned. Yeah. And it was banned for the vile language, for the bad language in the book. So that was still an issue. This censorship thing was still an issue. And the book, in fact, was still on the banned list when Barstel Boy went on in the Abbey Theatre in the 1967. <laughs> which well, is an interesting yeah. contradiction. Well, yeah, strange things. Yeah, the theatre was not censored in Ireland in any great way, but the printed words very much was. Ah, so yeah, being yeah. at an easier time on stage than in print. Yeah, I suppose because the, the, the print is there uh, to be seen all the time. Mm-hmm. Theatre has a, has, a, has a more ephemeral mm-hmm. side to it. Let's listen to a brief uh, comment from Behan here about Barstel Boy, the book, being banned. I had a book banned here, Parcel Boy, and they said, uh, what do you think of it? I said, trouble me. The Irish are not my audience. They are my raw material. Would you like the Irish to be your audience as no, well? No, I, I don't care. I don't care. Oh, <laughs> when he says, I don't care, I don't care there at the end, Peter Sheridan. 
I'm not sure how much I believe him. Do you think he was being absolutely truthful there or did he care about the, the, the Irish not being his, his audience or his raw material, as he put it? Yeah, but, but I mean, the, the truth is is that he was, he was better known and in a way more loved abroad than he was in Ireland because he made the, the two great landmark things in terms of his, his, his growth as a, as a personality were the Malcolm Muggeridge interview on the BBC where he was very, very drunk and could barely talk. Mm. And Muggeridge was so distracted by the fact that he couldn't get much out of being that he asked him to sing and he sang the red flag. But everybody in the UK was talking about this interview of this mad Irish man who was like drunk and cursing and out of control. And he became really famous in the UK. And then when he went to America, sober the first time, because he was such a great television guest, he became the star Mm. of late night television him and Jackie Gleason were the two most in demand um, uh, people for late night television and Brendan who had a pedigree of somebody who had served time for the IRA in an English prison you didn't get better credentials yeah. in America than that to be on late night television and of course he became an absolute See, rock star right, let's, let's have, a, have a clip of him this is in, in a conversation with Ed Morrow again you're talking about that type of television and Jackie Gleason mm. is in the, midst, in the midst of this clip again I, and, and once again Brendan being not to be messed with, no. as you'll hear in this clip. But I feel like shouting because it seems to be so many thousand miles away. And uh, if I shout, you must put it down to the fact that I'm not very sophisticated. We can't hear Brendan too good. I don't know whether it's the connection here or the source there. That Jackie at least talking there. Yes, it is Brendan by. Well, he's, he's, uh, I'm not Brendan by. I'm just Brendan. And uh, Ed Morrow. Yes. Am I allowed to say something? It's your turn. Well, thank you very much. Russians won't have me. And I never I never got an invitation from the United States. You have an invitation from me, Brandon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my dear boy. I wouldn't fancy having no. to deal with Brendan being in an interview like that, Peter. Now, interestingly, Brendan was in Dublin in that final yes. interview and the others were in, in were in America. That was kind of why yeah, he was trying to figure out what was going what's on. What's happening. But, of course, he did appear with Jackie Gleason. <laughs> Later on. Him, you know, yeah. Let Jackie Gleason talk. <laughs> Let Jackie Gleason talk. He didn't like being called Brendan Byrne. No, though. no, he did not. He did not. This, he didn't like being patted on the head in yeah, that way. This point about censorship, if you have an international audience, it doesn't. He, he finds it something humorous. He has this great one, you know, my name is Brendan Behan, I'm the latest of the band. <laughs> Although we're small in number, we're the best band in the land. <laughs> if you have an international audience, censorship doesn't affect your career. But there's all these great Irish writers, and Sinead Gleeson's done great work in this in recent years. People like Nora Holt, mm-hmm. who no one in Ireland has really heard of, because their writing career was in Ireland, and censorship could be the end of a career. Mm. But for, for Brendan, I think being censored in Ireland probably sold more books abroad. Yeah. Derry, um, Derry Farrell sitting uh, patiently behind us there. He's going to do a bit of singing for us. But um, I suppose Kathleen Behan, we were talking about Kathleen Behan. We did a special programme on St. Bridget's Night. Um, we, we touched on Kathleen Behan and the, the kind of a nature of a singer she was. She was hugely important in terms of singing songs, first of all, but also in the development of the young Behan, I would say, Derry. Yeah. And um, I, I heard them first. I was lucky enough to actually from Crumlin myself, funny enough, I, um, stones throw from the house there myself, you know. And uh, I heard her, I heard Brendan singing first. Uh, I went back to, I done, I done everything a bit backwards in my life and I went back to school when I was older to learn mm. about music and, and I heard Kathleen Bean singing then and I was like, there's an awful lot of truth in, in that singing there, you know. You kind of get to learn about that and uh, yeah, her her uh, 
she was a strong woman, wasn't yeah. she? Like, you know, certainly had and, that. Uh, yeah, and you know, the song so, you're going to sing for us, in I, fact, is is did, did I don't know if you learned it from her, but you probably heard her singing it. I definitely heard her singing it on uh, th- those couple of tracks that she on those few tracks yeah. that she recorded, you know. And uh, yeah, I'll sing a song for you called Biddy Mulligan here, and uh, this is a, a this is a great song, you know. Um, anyway, it goes like this. I'm a buxom fine widow who lives in a spot in Dublin they call Linthicum. And me shop and be stall are laid out on the street and me palace consists of one room. Up in Patrick Street corner for 45 years I've stood there, I'm telling no lie. The pride of the coom fresh fish. Yeah, lovely stuff indeed. <laughs> Derry Farrell there and uh, Biddy Mulligan back with more about Brenda Behan after this break. Welcome back to this arena special to mark the centenary of the birth of Brendan Behan. Still with me in studio, Peter Sheridan and Donald Fallon, along with musicians Derry Farrell, McDarry Yates and Anne Buckley. We spoke a little bit before the break there, Peter Sheridan, about Ian Borselboy, the novel, which of course became a play later on and became your film as well. But what about the actual plays of Brendan Behan? You came across these, I think, through your father's uh, drama group, was it? Well, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, the first being I ever saw was Borsal Boy at the Abbey in '67. Yeah. Um, when uh, Frank Grimes played the young being and Neil Tobin, which became a legend, mm. played the older being in that show, and just to be in a theatre and see a show about a, a family, a kid who was living up the road from where I came from, you know, going on this extraordinary journey you know, which became a journey of self-discovery and explosions were going off on stage. And I remember there was smoke everywhere and there was the sort of the sense of revolution in the theatre going on. I was completely taken Mm. by this. I was like, I want to be a part of this. This is what I want to do. I want to be in and about what's going on here. It just, it, it really had a, a profound in, impact on me. And you know, I was saying is when we listened to the Oil Triangle at the beginning of the programme, it's impossible not to hear Neil Tobin as, totally. as, as being, like the, the voice that he managed to create in that production, yeah. which went on yeah. in different, I mean, every actor in Dublin, yeah. I think, was in it at some stage no. between 1966 and mm-hmm. 19, the 1990s. Yeah. It went on yeah. for several productions, several yeah. versions of that production. Yeah, and Brendan, and Beatrice tells the most heartbreaking story about Brendan in his later years, RTE rebroadcast, which they did many times, the recording of The Queer Fella, in which, of course, he sings the song. Mm. And he was in a very bad way. He was getting towards the end. And um, it came on the radio. And Brendan woke up when he heard it and he said, who's that, who's that singing? Who's that singing? And she said, that's you, Brendan. Uh-huh. That's you. Mm. That's oh. terribly sad, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, it just brings tears to my eyes still. I... That idea of somebody hearing themselves... And and not knowing it's them, but knowing it's of them and something about them, and mm. just the impact that had was just yeah. Well, that that's a, that's an extraordinary story. Mm-hmm. Let's listen to to a bit of that production. In fact, mm-hmm. from the from the opening scene, um, Mia Hollow Hare was the producer in 1956 of this uh, RT radio production. Arthur O'Sullivan plays the character of Dunlavin. Franco Dwyer is the first prisoner here, and Charles McCarthy is the second prisoner. <sighs> Is that a bad morning for the races? No, I don't think I can make it today. Too much to do in the office. Uh, oh, yeah. I heard a lot of commotion last night around in G-Wing. 
There must have been one of them replaced. Which one? There's two for a haircut and shave tomorrow. Oh, I don't know. Don't laugh at now, there. Give him a call. Hey, don't laugh Don't laugh at him. Hey, you scrub that place years away. Hey, don't laugh and they ran to what's all they shouting about. I'm showing you up for a special visitor. Healy from the department is coming up today to inspect the cells. Hey, listen, Don Lavin. You're like the news of the world. Sitting there at the corner of the wing with a giant in the hot water pipe getting you news from every art and part any time you put your ear to it. Tell us, sir, uh, what was the commotion last night round in J-Wing? Did the queer fella get a reprieve? Now, which queer fella do you mean? The fellow bet his wife to death with the silver top cane. There was a presentation to him from the Combined Staff's Excess and Refunds branch of the late Great Southern Railways was reprieved. Though why he got chucked any more than the other fellas more than I can tell. Well, I, I suppose they looked at it this way. He only killed her and left it at that. He didn't cut the corpse up afterwards with a hatchet. Oh, terrible business. There's nothing so common as a hatchet. Rail bog man act. Nearly as bad as a shotgun. Or making a mistake and getting the weed killer mixed up with the story about was a man with a silver chop cane. Oh, that's a man that's a step above buttermilk, no matter how you look at it. <laughs> Arthur O'Sullivan has done laughing. Frank O'Dwyer as first prisoner. Charles McCarthy as second prisoner in May Holloway's production of Begins the Queer Fighter from 1956 for RT Radio. And Radio, radio yeah. Drama had a, a very special place. But Peter, as you listen to that, it's impossible not to remark on the quality of that dialogue. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, his dialogue is just of Dublin and about Dublin. And they said when they produced it first in 1954, the, the stage mm. play in the Pike Theatre where my my great mentor, Alan Simpson, and Carolyn Swift were the joint artistic directors, um, I think there were 28 speaking parts in The Queer Fella and the, and the, the theatre held 50. So there were as many in the show as there were in the audience. And it got so packed that the actors had to queue up in the laneway outside the pike and enter in through the door in order so that they wouldn't crush each other backstage. I mean, this is how they were putting the play on. It was very much, we're putting this play on because we believe it's great work, but they weren't in a theatre that was equipped to put on that play. Isn't there an old equity rule that you're not supposed to put the play on if the if the, if the the audience isn't twice the cast on stage <laughs> plus one? That's so correct. So 228 is 56 plus one is 57. No yeah, way they were going to get yeah. 57 people into the play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was just an extraordinary time, an extraordinary... Per- and I mean, the play immediately preceding that was Waiting for Godot in the English wow. language world premiere. When you think of that back in 1953, yeah. 54, and talking about censorship, within a couple of years the Pike Theatre's being closed down because they produced the Rose Tattoo yeah. mm-hmm. and show a condom on stage. I mean, these were the times we were living in back then. Yeah. This is the kind of hypocrisy that Bean was fighting against yeah, back in the early 1950s. They're putting on Bertolt Brecht. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a truly European theatre as well as a great mm-hmm. Irish theatre. But you talked about your earliest memory of seeing Bean on stage being in the Abbey. We shouldn't re- forget that, I mean, the Abbey reject Behan and it's mm. it's it's the Bohemian theatre world it's mm. the Pike mm. but also it's it's Joan Littlewood and the theatre workshop in Britain mm. that sees the brilliance in all of this Yeah because initially um, he was certainly not lauded and was part of that the censorship and inevitably the name of John Charles McQuaid is going to come up once you get into the, what was happening in any form of cultural activity at yeah, this well, period in time The, sen- the, the, the theatre is very heavily censored in Britain at that time and in Ireland the theatre is a lot freer than the, than mm. the printed word I think it's more just the conservative forces that were there in the Abbey at the time, Blyde and others. But then you have the theatre workshop and, and Joan Littlewood, I think she lives that idea that Bertolt Brecht has that great line. He says, mm. art 
is not a mirror held up to society. It's a hammer with which to shape mm. us. Mm. And she feels that too. And she's mm. putting on, you know, Sheila Delaney, these great kind of working class yeah. British playwrights. And she sees Brendan Behan as part of that great project as well. Yeah, let's listen to have, have a clip of uh, Joan Littlewood and her reaction to first reading uh, Behan's plays and, and how she felt. And I read about five pages and it leapt off the page. One didn't have to read any more, and I sent a wire right away, come. We were very broke, and he wired back and he said, I haven't my fare. So he sent his fare and he drank it, and he said, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm saving up to be one. And finally, uh, because we were so hard up, we managed to send him a ticket instead of the money, and he arrived one Saturday afternoon in the bar downstairs where I just met you, very shy came with a young painter friend. I said, well, you were a bit late. And I was very, very loath to do anything to the work because it was it, it flowed with all the things that have since said about his magnificent writing. And I didn't want to tamper, but I had had to do the first act without his presence. And I said, well, now, tomorrow morning, you'll see what we're doing with the first act. And he sat and he, he laughed at his own jokes. And at the end, he said, oh, be Christ, I'm a fucking genius. <laughs> that was that. And I wondered how he'd... Because he didn't bother much about stage directions, like most good dramatists. He wasn't bothered about that. It flowed from his pen, and he left it until someone would bring it to life and let it grow. And that's uh, Joan Littlewood there speaking about a, a production, an on, about to happen production of The Hostage. A little bit of language, obviously, at the end of that. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, but she was quoting Brendan Behan. Mm. It was hardly going to be uh, super clean in the no. process. But it's, it's interesting, I suppose, there's a temptation to think, because it had been, on, it had existed, The Hostage first as an Irish language mm. play. There's a temptation to think, oh, that Brechtian style and that stuff that, that happened with it, that was Joan Littlewood and her theatre. But she's very clear on, on where the, the genius, without the, without the expletive, yeah. uh, where yeah. it lies, Peter. Well, Ungeal was obviously the Irish language version of the play, mm. which opened in 1958. Actually, it opened on Bloomside the 16th of June in 58 in the Damer Hall in, in Stephen's Green on a grant from Gay Lynn. He got a grant from Galen to write the play. And then Joan, because she had done The Queer Fella, wanted to see what she could do, maybe open the play out a little bit. Mm. Um, and he just loved the way the theatre workshop in Stratford worked. He loved the improvisation. He loved, you know, making it up as you go. And she had done all what a lovely war. She had sent the actors out to find characters and come back and reveal these characters who had all gone off to fight in the war with all the great First World War songs. So Brendan was now in this atmosphere of creativity and work and working in that way, in that workshop way. And he absolutely embraced the changes mm. that she was talking about bringing. I personally prefer the English language version of the mm. play to the Irish language version of the play because I think he got into a really important part of the oeuvre, which was the idea that they were anti-theatre. Joan Littlewood was very political. Mm. She was very anti-establishment and anti-bourgeois. She wanted the theatre to be much more like the vaudeville. But of course, Brendan Bean had grown up watching vaudeville in the Queen's Theatre. Yeah. Mm. You know, the family were regular visitors there. So he embraced this. It was like it was like uh, uh, water to a duck for Brendan. Yeah. And, and they turned the play into M MI5 it. took a great interest in, in the theatre workshop and, and what they were um, doing. Because of his politics. In, in Littlewood's memoir, she's a lovely line when she hears that Brendan has died. She's so angry, she says... I wanted to go to Dublin and kick the coffin. 
because she regarded this as such a just a waste of talent. Yeah, um, Anne, Anne Buckley has been here with us from the beginning of the programme, Anne, and then you're going to sing a song from The Hostage, but maybe before, before you do that, you'd uh, this argument that there is uh, with uh, Brendan Behan in and around uh, prose versus poetry, so which I suppose is, has, has a sense of, it gives us a sense of the humour of the man. Do you remember the story, Anne? Oh, it, yeah, indeed I do. It was going around on Facebook there a while ago too, but... Um, it's one of those stories like the a part of the Brendan mythology, I think, that I wonder did it really happen. But I'm sure somebody here will know for sure. <laughs> it was just one where he was supposed to have been um, taking part in a literary debate or discussion on um, the difference between prose and poetry. And uh, some professor had gone on at length about the subject. And Brendan, the, you know, brevity being the soul of wit, he comes along and he goes, he says... Uh, there was a young fella called Rollocks who worked for Ferrier Pollux. He walked on the strand with a girl by the hand and the water came up to his ankles. <laughs> now he says, that was prose. <laughs> he says, but if the tide had been in, it would have been poetry. <laughs> <laughs> if it didn't happen, it should have happened. Yeah. Let's, let, yeah. let's be sure. The song then that you, the, that you have for us from The Hostage, what is this song on? Yeah, this song is, uh, it's called There's No Place on Earth Like the World. And I think probably, I don't really know much about it. uh, Peter could probably maybe talk a little bit about it if you wanted. But um, like, I just have a picture in my head now of doing it. Um, I just, I get a picture of Charles Chaplin with the globe, playing with the globe of the world in The Great Dictator, you know, when I sing it. So (laughs) Put the picture in your head and let's hear the song. Yeah, look at here, I'll give it a shot anyway. So there's no place on earth like the world from the hostage. There's no place on earth like the world. There's no place wherever you be. There's no place on earth like the world that stand up and take it from me. That stand up and take it from me. Shin will. Ah, What a what a brilliant song, uh, and and the lyrics of that in there. When when you listen to them, uh, Peter yeah. Sheridan, you know, oh, they're hilarious, of course. Yeah. But boy, oh, do they God. have political content and points to make. Do you agree with the hot Don't walk about with the moon. Don't walk about with the moon. And I mean. And, and the bells of hell, of course, which he got from Joan Littlewood and then mm. put into the hostage. Mm. The bells of hell go ting-a-ling-a-ling for you, <laughs> you but, but not, not for me. me. <laughs> I mean, they're wonderful songs, anti-war songs. Yeah. Um, you know, tapping into the whole thing of the band, the bomb, mm. the hydrogen bomb, the bomb that had happened. And Brendan Upton said afterwards that, you know, it was the emergence almost of the hydrogen bomb that convinced them that the Irish problem couldn't be settled by force. <laughs> And again, you know, <laughs> really black humour mm. in in the midst of all of that, mm. but but very strong stuff in, mm. indeed. He really did, and, and when I was listening to that, I don't, I don't know, if, I could almost hear a touch of the goons. In you know, <laughs> there's no place on earth like the world. There's a touch of that radio kind of, which was, I suppose, the development of vaudeville into a radio side. There's a touch of that in being. Yeah, and I think the Littlewood productions all have that great. Um, she always liked being. She loved the song. You know, mm. and he, being remembered that she, she was there was always time for another song uh, in the Littlewood production. But what an incredible! I mean, we think about you can't talk about Ulysses without talking about Sylvia Beach mm. and so much of great British theatre in the twentieth century. I mean, Sheila yeah. Delaney's a Taste of Honey is a mm. is a masterpiece as mm. well. That's also sh- shaped uh, shaped by Littlewood. So it's an extraordinary contribution yeah. to make. 
Um, also with us is uh, Makdara Yates, and we've been speaking about the, the hostage, Makdara, uh, and originally in on Gael, as as Peter was saying to us, Peter Sheridan, has his Irish writing, particularly his his poetry, since we were talking about the tide being in and the tide being out, has his poetry been forgotten along the way as well? I would say 100%. I, I think if you ask the average man on the street in Ireland mm. uh, what they know about Brendan Bean, I'd, I'd say they'd be surprised to learn that he ever wrote in Irish at all. Um, if you look at some of his sort of earlier publications, he published maybe 10 or 15 poems for this sort of left-wing Irish language editorial called Coer at the time, alongside people like Maura McEntee, Martino Duran, people like that. And this was his main output at the time. This, anyone in that scene knew him as that. Now, he had sort of frustrations with the Irish language movement at the time. He didn't feel like it was sort of progressive enough for mm. his life. Um, and I imagine censorship in Ireland probably put paid to uh, any real ambitions of writing in Irish. But absolutely, I mean, he's. it's said that he learned Irish in prison from people like Martin O'Kane and Sean O'Brien. But um, it's probably likely that he had quite a decent command of Irish uh, yeah. uh, from school. And uh, then really when he began writing, the Irish language was a central part of that for sure. So you're going to give us a song of Behan So at this point, uh, Makdara. And, and this is uh, The Laughing Boy. Give us, a, give us the context for this. Tell us a little bit yeah, about so- the song. I guess that this song's first outing is really in the hostage. Whether or not it was extant before that, whether or not he sang it at sessions is kind of unknown. Um, but that's where it got its its sort of first airing. Um, it's Beans Mash the Collins and really sort of capturing the uh, the tragedy uh, of his death. The Beans were an anti-treaty family. You make no, no bones about it. Um, but Brendan, I suppose, had the maturity to see the tragedy in a, an Irishman being killed by a fellow Irishman, two men that were uh, mm. effectively on the, the same side a couple of years previous. And uh, he wrote a beautiful song about it. All right, well, let's have a listen to it then. The Laughing Boy. It was on an August morning All in the morning hours I went to take the warming air all in the mouth of flowers. Mark Dardy, it's there with the laughing boy. And back with the final part of our Brendan Behan celebration after this break. Welcome back to Arena as we celebrate Brendan Behan's centenary. With me are Peter Sheridan, Donald Fallon, McDarry Yates, Anne Buckley and Derry Farrell. Uh, Peter, we've been speaking uh, to a large extent about his work, about the 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 novel, The Barstool Boy, the plays and indeed the poetry as Mark Dari Yates was, was telling us about before the break there. You can't avoid the troubled personality though mm-hmm. uh, when it comes. I mean, the fact that he, he himself referred to himself as a drinker with a writing problem says a lot, doesn't it? It's a genius line. <laughs> it is. He had that great ability to nail it, didn't he? With, with one line. He also said, I drink to make other people interesting. <laughs> Which is a fantastic, one of my favourite mm-hmm. lines about drinking, you know. Um, you know, back in the mid fifties, when you know he, that golden age of his work, like from fifty four to fifty eight, he was revising Barstool Boy, which mm. he'd been kind of writing on and off for ten years, and he had a good routine. He went to Connemara on a grant to improve his Irish for a man who spoke such beautiful Irish. Mm. Even the fact that he wanted to improve it tells you a lot about him. And himself and Beatrice went down there for a couple of months, and his routine was up at seven in the morning. He did an hour, he went for a walk and he came back and he worked for the rest of the day and he had a very strict diet. That's how it was for him in the mid-50s. He had a lot of discipline. Um, And then he had in 58 the two great things coming together. The publication of Barstool Boy 
and the opening of Ungail. And from the opening of Ungail, the hostage, it went to the West End and then it went to Broadway. And he followed it to Broadway. Mm. And it was really in America that he tipped over into the complete uh, catastrophic addiction that alcohol can bring. And I mean, it was singularly unfunny. Yeah. There was nothing funny about it. It became really dark and and awful and just you were watching a human being disintegrate in front of your eyes. It is so profoundly sad. And it's a good way to set up Prabs and Old, which we'll hear his his Gaelic in the midst of this, we'll hear him singing in Irish. But the the theme that he's singing about here, as you say, the comedy has is all is all but gone when he's singing about this. It's on my sleeve, and if you say, Dean, a hicks in your PLC, a Sidian of Stoll, it's a Lisa Sweeney, a Sergio from Hale, shows come eggs, she chanted, we like to fall. Brennan Behan there with Prabs and Old and Donald Fallon. As, as you listen to that, yeah. it's hard not to hear. You can almost hear, I regret, the tiredness, yeah. the, the absolute, the the awareness in his voice as he sings well, that, Prabs should, and Old. Should you find yourself in, in New York City and you pass the, the Chelsea Hotel, uh, there's a series of plaques on the building. Obviously, Leonard Cohen immortalised it in song. Dylan mm. Thomas uh, spent time there too. But Brendan, and the, the plaque for Brendan, it's really interesting. It says, America, the man who hates you hates the human race. You know, he just falls in love with New York City. You can mm. have whatever you want, whenever you want it, all the time. And there's great pictures from that time. Uh, Richard Avedon, great photographer, photographs him with, you know, people like Allen Ginsberg. Uh, a young Bob Dylan is running around after him. In New York, there's this obsession with him. But quickly, I think, uh, that's ours. And Does he become drinks. a victim in some ways of his own success? You know, he becomes the professional drunk, the professional Irishman, the professional storyteller. Yeah, and there's a hostility to Brendan in sometimes surprising political quarters. I mean, Sean Lamas uh, at home is very troubled by the idea of the, the stage Irishman that, that Beaton's putting onto, onto the world stage. But remember at home how late something like television arrives into mm. our lives. I mean, television is launched in, I think, the, the 60s. 62. We're very late to television in this country. So mm. to have uh, a bandwagon, as he has in, in, in the United States, to perform on, uh, it's an opportunity that he, that he takes. His legacy then, um, if, if you think about something as recent as Fontaine's DC, uh, their second album called The Hero's Death, direct reference, a yeah. direct quote from, from Behan. What do you think it is, Donald? What, what has he handed on to today's and, and the generations from him, uh, Brendan Behan? I think we need to view him not merely as an Irish writer, but as part of a, a movement that was happening uh, across these islands. I think it's part of that idea of, in Britain, what they call the kitchen sink realism, that mm. everyday life, that working class life was something worth talking about, worth putting on, putting on stage. So I think we need to think about him as part of that theatre workshop generation mm. uh, of brilliant working class writers. And, and for you, Peter? Uh, well, there's that. And, and at home, on a more parochial level, there's the engagement with the Irish language, which I think is really, really important. You know? And you can tell from him singing there, his pronunciation, his bloss, is absolutely fantastic. I mean, he really spoke Irish the way it's meant to be spoken in the West of Ireland. He just had that great ability. He also spoke fluent French. So, yeah. He, oh yeah, because he lived in Paris, you see. Mm. He lived in Paris for quite a few years. So he was obviously really somebody who could learn languages quite quickly. One of his teachers in, in, in Sean O'Brien, the, the, the man for whom he wrote the famous poem, Jackie Queen in a Mlaskade, he wrote that for his teacher, uh, who was a body ferreter man, Sean O'Brien. Sean O'Brien said he was the finest Irish student he ever taught. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy from Russell Street mm. who left school at 14. 
who went to England and was in jail for the best mm. part of, of of his young adulthood. And yet he had this huge love, this huge affection and went to work at improving his Irish yeah. at a time when we were all being told in school, this is the true Irishman. This is the definition of Irishness, of what we should be aspiring to, to be spe- Irish speakers, to be immersed in our history, to be, mm. to be Republicans. Brendan Bean represented a version of that and at the end, it became quite tragic because he was also addicted to alcohol. And that song, Cor Prabs and All, put your true trust in drink. The Irish for whiskey is Ushkabaha, the water of life. Mm. It's actually the water of death for many, many people. And we have this really strange relationship to alcohol in Ireland. And in many ways, those people who kind of laud the drunken being are feeding into that notion that alcohol and alcohol abuse is okay. It's singularly not. And I see a lot of nodding in agreement going on around around the the studio. Essential humanity of the work in terms of, you know, what it tells us about the death penalty, what it tells us about working class solidarity, how people from Salford mm. and Liverpool and Manchester could have so much in common with this kid from, from Russell Street. I think that's at the heart of it too. And did you, Peter, was there a nurse living in your house then? Who Did she, she was there at the uh, present as he died? Yeah, she was, she was my mum's first cousin, Nurse Mulholland, and she was a lodger in our house. We kept lodgers and she was working in the Mead Hospital. So we were getting all the reports back from what was happening in the hospital because there were people trying to, 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 to there were people trying to, to mm. steal him in alcohol. And a man was dying of alcoholism in his bed and they were trying to get whiskey into him and brandy and all that nonsense was going on. So we were getting all those reports of Brendan's demise. Um, and then he died on the 20th of March. And to cut 20 years later, I was researching a, a movie that I was trying to make with Sean Penn attached. And I brought Sean Penn over to the Mead Hospital to show him the actual ward where Brendan Bean had died and we went down to the office and we were checking the registers and there's the register for Brendan Bean's death March the 20th 1964 and the doctor who signs it his name is Peter Sheridan Wow! and I'm looking at Sean Penn saying Sean this could only happen in Ireland that was the man's name and I'm trying to make a movie about him to bring him back to life if you ever I mean, wanted to say hairs on the back of your neck <laughs> right. it comes to mind for sure and it's 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 the place to stop I think <laughs> well almost stop because we're going to have going to have one more song before we go but thanks very much to all of you for coming into us this evening Peter Sheridan Donald Fallon uh, Anne Buckley McDarry Yates and Derry Farrell and all uh, of the folks here with me this evening will be part of a special event at Liberty Hall this Thursday it's called Behan at 100 Songs and Stories although I believe the event is already sold out so there you go it's hardly surprising capital letters yeah. <laughs> capital letters sold out maybe there'll be, be another little run of it anyway um, can, let me just say that uh, tonight's programme um, Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator Gar Duffy was on sound and the programme was researched and compiled by Liam Murphy Derry's going to finish the show for us with the song that Brendan Behan thoroughly enjoyed singing and I think we're all going to thoroughly enjoy listening to I Leave It To You Derry to bring us up to the Zoological Gardens. (laughs) Don't be afraid to join in now.
Oh, thunder and lightning is no lark When Dublin City is in the dark And if you've any money, head out to the park And view the zoological gardens And if you've any money, head up to the park And view the zoological gardens that was Sean Rocks with a special edition of Arena celebrating the centenary of Brendan Bean's birth and there's lots more too over on rte.ie forward slash Brendan hyphen Bean and uh, on TV nationwide as well we'll have a special about him on Wednesday night at 